Another exciting weekend in the world of Biggie's basketball is in the books, and I've got your full analysis of all the action that's transpired over the last three days, and it's only here on the Igloo. Welcome inside. I'm Tim Best, and these last three days have been a whirlwind for the Big East. A lot of action from Friday to Sunday, a lot of highs but also some lows, so let's get to all of that, starting with what happened Friday night, only one game on the docket, and it was an in-state rivalry, Providence and Rhode Island at the Ryan Center, Providence went into that game having won eight of nine meetings against the Rams in this decade, Rhode Island's lone win came in 2017 at the Ryan Center, So Providence looking to continue the trend of owning Rhode Island. But Friday night, it just was not meant to be as the Friars continued their struggles going on the road and losing to URI 75-61. I said on Friday's show that stopping Fats Russell was going to be a key. And if they could do that, Providence would have a chance to win. Well, they couldn't stop Fats Russell. 24 points, 7 of 16 from the field to lead the way for the Rams. He also dished out 8 assists, which was just over half of Rhode Island's assists. Meanwhile, for Providence, positives and negatives. Your positives... Nate Watson played tremendously off the bench. 10 points and 6 rebounds in just 16 minutes. Shot 5 of 8 from the field. That was the huge positive in this game. The negatives? The fact that LaJuan Pipkins put up a goose egg. And keep in mind, LaJuan Pipkins is coming from UMass. He's familiar with playing against URI, given his history playing against them in the Atlantic 10. Needless to say, I'm a little shocked for him to not score a single point in that game. A.J. Reeves struggled mightily as well. He scored six points but shot just two of nine from the field. Alpha Diallo, David Duke, yes, they combined for 25, but shot a combined nine of 26 from the field. And again, I think what everyone is starting to realize, at least on Twitter, I've seen some outrage from Providence. Again, that loss drops them to 5-5 five and five out of conference. And from what the discussion says, Providence fans really believe that their two best players are David Duke and Nate Watson, and they should be fed accordingly. But according to them, and even in my eyes, I thought about it, Those two guys aren't getting the attention and the touches they deserve. So, I I mean, I see the point Providence fans are trying to make. I'm not saying that they are 100% right, but I do see where they're coming from, and the numbers do show. I mean, Nate Watson, a very efficient game. 10-6, 16 minutes, coming off the bench. It's very clear that he is their best big man. And I know Khalif Young and Evan Holder are also solid. But Nate Watson's their best big man, by far. The biggest problem Providence needs to address, guard play. It has been non-existent the last few games, and they need to patch it up if they want to go into Big East play without a losing record. And based on their next three games before that Big East opener on New Year's Eve... They might very well be 6-7. and seven. They got Stony Brook Saturday night. And then they play Florida in Brooklyn and Texas at the dunk. As of right now, I don't think Providence is winning either of those last two games. I really don't see that. It's, it's just not good for Providence. They've dug themselves too deep into a hole... 
And they're honestly going to need a miracle if they want to salvage their NCAA tournament hopes. Trust me, reality hurts. But that's reality, and Providence is not even close to being an NCAA tournament team right now. And hell, I'll even say, I think right now they are, without a doubt, the worst team in the Big East. Again, so much for thinking that they would finish in the top half of the Big East, considering they were projected to finish tied for fourth in the preseason poll with Marquette. Now, the way I see it is they have a similar situation to what they had back in 2017-18, where they went 9-4 and four out of conference, but this situation is far worse. I know Ed Cooley can make adjustments and turn teams around in Big East play. I just don't know with how good the Big East is this year from top to bottom. I just don't think that he is going to have enough to save this team this time around. I just don't see it. Meanwhile, Saturday, hallmark day for the Big East, a signature day. Top to bottom. Let's start with Florida and Butler. Butler, I thought Florida was going to beat him. And Butler shut me up. Not only did they win, they won by 14, so they won handily. Sean McDermott came up big with 16 points to lead the dogs. Kamar Baldwin, slow day for him. He only had 12. But how about the effort from Aaron Thompson stepping up? I, I mentioned that a big thing in a game like this, if they could somehow get some point production from Aaron Thompson, that they could win this game. He tied McDermott for the team high with 16 points. Jordan Tucker also came up big, knocked down three three-pointers, finished with 13 points in 29 minutes to salvage Bryce Enzi, who had foul trouble all game, nearly fouled out. In 19 minutes for NZ, 6 points, 5 rebounds, 4 personal fouls. Not to mention they did a good job. Now I know Kerry Blackshear had a solid game, 5 of 10 from the field, 17 points. But winning the battle on the glass was huge for Butler. 28 to 25, and not to mention hitting 45% from behind the arc and shooting 52% for the game. That was a huge factor in Butler's big win. And Butler's got a huge game coming up tomorrow night at Baylor. Baylor is a really, really good team from what I've seen. They moved all the way up to number 11 in the country after this 7-1 start. They got a big win over Arizona on Saturday by 5. Baylor is the favorite by 5. And I'm telling you, this is going to be where we really see what Butler's made of. Good wins against two quality SEC teams this past week, beating Ole Miss on the road and then a huge win at Hinkle over Florida. But this is by far the toughest test out of that three-game stretch to start December. Baylor's really good. Jared Butler's the real deal. He's shooting nearly 50% from the field. He's averaging nearly 19 a night. And as for Butler, Kamar Baldwin's got to find a way to bounce back after a, after an off day against Florida. I know he's got it in him. It's just a matter of if he's going to do enough to help Butler win in a very tough road environment in Waco. I think B- Baylor's going to win this game, but... I think Butler is going to make it close. I think they're going to prove, yes, they are a very good team, but just not good enough to win a game with that much leverage on it against a team of that caliber in Baylor. Another big win, St. John's beating West Virginia at the very last second. Rasheem Dunn knocked down two free throws in the final seconds to give St. John's the win to improve to 8-2. and two. And I credit St. John's for limiting the contributions of a lot of West Virginia's best players. 
Jermaine Haley was the leading scorer going into this game. The 6'7 senior from Vancouver. St. John's held him to just six points on three of six shooting. And West Virginia's best individual performance came off the bench from Miles McBride with 13 points. No, excuse me. I, I, Sean McNeil, not Miles McBride. Got him, I, I just mixed him up on the stat sheet that I have here. So Sean McNeil had 13 points off the bench. So they did a great job of limiting West Virginia's starters in this game. Just 32 points scored by the Mountaineers starting five, meaning more than half of their scoring came from the bench. Meanwhile, for St. John's, L.J. Figueroa came to play 17 points. Mustafa Heron struggled. He was 2 of 12 from the field and still chipped in 9. Nick Rutherford had a great game scoring the ball. He had 11 points on 4 of 9 shooting. And then Rasheem Dunn with 13 points, including the two game-winning free throws, again, in the final seconds to clinch this game for the Red Storm. And that is a huge confidence booster because now you got Brown on Tuesday night, and I don't think I need to go in depth with this game. St. John's is going to win this game against a Brown team that is nowhere near as good as St. John's. And St. John's, after this, they only have two more non-conference games to go. You get Albany a week after that, and then a huge game in San Francisco, the Al Adels Classic against Arizona. I think for St. John's now, I know West Virginia is not an amazing team, but that is, I think it's going to go down as a quality win for St. John's. I really do. Granted, West Virginia really didn't play anybody, and St. John's is like the first real test for them. But again, credit St. John's. Going into Madison Square Garden, I knew that they would show up with the spotlight on them. With the bright lights of Madison Square Garden. And they did enough to take down Bob Huggins and the Mountaineers. Meanwhile, some other action. I mean, those are the two headliners for me. Another in-state rivalry to talk about. I mean, actually, this is the first in-state rivalry I'm talking about. Creighton crushing Nebraska, 95-76. Creighton scored 35 of the first 42 points in the game. And Marcus Zigorowski, 30 points, 13 of 19 shooting. And he knocked down four three-pointers. Creighton as a team, 13 for 30 from behind the arc. And leading the way for the Cornhuskers in defeat was, I mentioned him before, a familiar face to Big East fans, former Marquette guard Hanif Cheatham. 14 points. 5 of 12 shooting. And they held Nebraska to just 41.5% from the field. Creighton as a team, 53%. 35 of 66. He had 30 from Zigorowski. 22 from Tyshawn Alexander. 10 from Christian Bishop. 13 from Mitch Ballack. Overall, really good contributions from the starters. And you need that in a game against an in-state foe like Nebraska. Again, that was 83 of their 95 points came from the starters. The other 12, Zeal had two in five minutes of play. And then Sharif Mitchell had five. And then another freshman, Jalen Windham, also had five. So Creighton won't play until the weekend. So let's move into a big five game in Philly. Villanova-St. Joe's. And St. Joe's... Made a try to make a comeback in the second half, and Villanova they know that St. Joe's is a one man band with Ryan Daly. However, they still let Daly go off 32 points, 11 of 22 from the field, including 10 of 11 from the charity stripe. But again, Villanova doing enough to get the job done on the road. Sadiq Bay led the way with 22 points. How about 20 from Colin Gillespie as well? Justin Moore chipped in 14 off the bench in 30 minutes. And then Jermaine Samuels, the other double-figure scorer for the Cats with 12. Biggest thing, Cole Swider only took one shot and missed. 
he lays a goose egg. And then Jeremiah Robinson Earl with seven points. And then Slater completed the scoring for Villanova with three points. I mean, a solid win for the for the Wildcats. And now they got a somewhat of a difficult game coming up on Saturday. I'll get more into that when the weekend comes. They are in the Never Forget Tribute Classic against Delaware. A surprisingly good Delaware team. Another inner city rivalry game. Xavier and Cincinnati. Crosstown shootout. Xavier getting the win 73-66. Dan texted Dan Letso, who was on the show with me for the Sign Mafia reunion special. He literally texted me right for the game ended. Dude, you should have stuck with the seven points you were given Xavier. <laughs> because they won by seven. 73-66. Najee Marshall with a huge game. 31 points to lead the way for the Muskies. Tyreek Jones, however, was the only other Xavier starter in double figures. He had 10 points to go along with 9 rebounds. And Najee Marshall with 8 rebounds as well. Not to mention they did a great job containing Jerron Cumberland. He scored just 11 points. 4 of 14 shooting, including a really bad 1 of 8 from the 3-point line. Quality win for Xavier. They get themselves back into the top 25 at number 23. And then... Butler, because of their big win against Florida, they're now up to number 18, up six spots. They are now the highest-ranked Big East team right now. I mean, I trust me, a month ago, I didn't think I'd be saying that. But credit the Bulldogs. They have come out this year trying to make a statement, and a 9-0 start has definitely helped them do that. And then finally, uh, Villanova... They were number 23 last week, and with a 2-0 week with wins over Penn and St. Joe's, now they're up to number 20 in the poll. And then a couple quality road wins in some late-night games Saturday night. Marquette went on the road and beat Kansas State 73-65. Marcus Howard led the way with 19 points, but overall great balance scoring and a breakout gain. Breakout game from Jamal Kane, the 6'7 junior from Pontiac. 17 points off the bench, 6 of 9 from the field, including 3 of 4 from behind the arc. Guy's not typically known for being a 3-point shooter, but he knocked down 3 of them. And again, 17 points, also had 9 rebounds. And then Sakar Annam, he scored 13 points, but kind of struggled shooting the ball. He was 5 of 13, 1 of 5 from behind the arc. Overall, another quality road win for Marquette, which I think that nullifies their loss at Wisconsin a few weeks ago. And that gets Marquette right where they want to. Again, they're 7-2, and they got three really easy games coming up after that. They don't play again until December 17th against Grambling. And then they'll close out after that with games against North Dakota State and Central Arkansas. So overall, Marquette's in really good shape with that road win. And speaking of getting in good shape, Georgetown, after just a nightmare press-wise with the dismissal of Josh LeBlanc and the transfer, the decision to transfer from James Akinjo, how do you recover from that, especially after a loss to UNC Greensboro at home, now you got a two-game road trip at Oklahoma State and at SMU. You win a big one at Oklahoma State, and now you got to go on the road play an undefeated SMU team, and Georgetown did not care about the record. They went in there, and they laid down a good old Texas ass-whooping on SMU. 91-74, they went up 20 at halftime. And speaking of breakout games, talk about Jamal Kane with Marquette. How about the breakout game from Javon Blair off the bench for the Hoyas? 7 of 11 from the field, all from behind the arc. Game high, 21 points to lead the Hoyas to a 17-point win, 91-74. to Mac McClung with 19 points, as well as Omer Yurtseven. Jamarco Pickett chipped in 11 of his own. Georgetown just lights out, 55.7% from the field. 
including over 50% from behind the arc, 14 trifectas for the Hoyas, not to mention they held the Mustangs to just 35% shooting, including just under 30% from behind the arc. Mustangs had four guys in double figures, but again, Georgetown coming out to play and dominating. And how about this? How about this stat? Javon Blair mentioned his 21 points, but those 21 points came in just 18 minutes of action. An impressive night for the junior from Brampton, Ontario, Canada. And that's the kind of confidence boost Georgetown needs as they enter an old-school Big East rivalry on Saturday on Fox, 1 p.m., Capital One Arena against Syracuse. And I'll have full analysis on that game. I know a thing or two. I've seen Syracuse a few times already this year. I'm only an hour from the Dome. So I've seen them a few times now. And I know what Georgetown's going to be getting into on Saturday when they rumble in front of a national TV audience on Fox. But the biggest thing with Georgetown, now with James Akinjo gone, this is Mac McClung's team to be the star on. Last year, he was kind of held down by Akinjo being Big East Freshman of the Year. And with that backcourt tandem, I mean, those two together were great, don't get me wrong. However, now that Akinjo is no longer there, there's an alpha male in the Hoyas backcourt. And he stands above the rest of his teammates. And that's Mac McClung. And no disrespect to Javon Blair, who had a spectacular game on Saturday night. But this is Mac Daddy's team. And Omer Yurtseven, as great as he is, he's going to be that steady presence as a veteran leader on this team. As a transfer coming in from North Carolina State, been there, done that. The senior from Turkey has definitely been the most consistent presence on this Georgetown team, averaging a double-double. But I still think this is Max's time to shine, and he has taken it in stride, scoring 52 points during Georgetown's 2-0 week with two huge road wins over SMU and Oklahoma State. Sunday was not a good day for the Big East, and it started with undefeated DePaul coming off a huge win over Texas Tech Wednesday night. I was kind of thinking, okay, DePaul might have a hangover in this. They might, but they did. And they let Buffalo get too far ahead. You know, they got away with it quite a few times where they let teams get up on them and they would come back and win. The biggest one being being down 18 at halftime against another MAC team, Central Michigan, and coming back to win solidly. However, with this Buffalo team, that just was not the case. Javon Graves had a monster game for the Bulls with 21 points. And then off the bench, Ronaldo Segu with 14. And despite four starters scoring in double figures for the Blue Demons, Jalen Coleman lands leading with 17 points. Paul Reed with 15. Jalen Butts with 11. And Romeo Weems with 13. It just was not enough to get the job done as Buffalo hands the Blue Demons their first loss of the season, 74-69 to at Wintrust. And this was a golden opportunity for the Blue Demons. Because if they had won, in all likelihood, they would have been into the top 25 with a solid win over Texas Tech. And a 10-0 record would have almost certainly gotten, got them in the top 25. Instead, ugly loss against UB. And now that drops them because now... They only got one vote in the latest AP poll. And speaking of ranked teams, Seton Hall entered Sunday night number 16 in the country, highest ranked team in the Big East, taking on Iowa State, who they just faced in their previous game in the battle for Atlantis on Black Friday, a game in which the Pirates won. And now they're going into a tough road environment. Hilton Coliseum. And the Pirates simply just did not have it on this night. And a big reason why was Sandro Mamukelashvili going down early in this game. 
And it's not going to be good for Seton Hall moving forward because this is going to be a long-term injury. They believe it's a broken wrist over at Seton Hall, which means the timetable for Mamu's absence, six to eight weeks. And believe me, listen, I've broken my wrist three times. And now I know I'm not an elite college athlete like Sandro Mamu Kelashvili, but I do know that broken wrists suck. And they they keep you on the shelf for a long time. Like, believe me, six to eight weeks in the scheme of a college basketball season, that is a long, long time. And they lose him with two big games coming up at Rutgers and then a home date against Maryland, who's currently number four in the rankings. And overall, Seton Hall just struggled in this game. I mean, both teams struggled offensively. Neither team shot above 40%, and neither shot over 30% from behind the arc. I mean, combined from three-point range, they were 12 for 49. And from the field, they took 128 shots and only made 48 of them. Not great offense from either team, but... It was a two-point game at the half. Iowa State leading 28-26. And then Iowa State, a little bit of Hilton magic, led the Cyclones to a a huge win and an upset for the Cyclones. They win that. That was by far their best win of their young season so far, beating Seton Hall 76-66. I mean, Tyrese Halliburton made some big boy plays late in the game. He finished with 17 points, dished out five assists, grabbed six rebounds. And if you're Seton Hall, you got to be irritated by the fact that you let George Condit off the bench score 17 points and go 5 of 8 from the field. Prentice Nixon also had 10, and Rasir Bolton also had 17. Just not a good look for Seton Hall. Miles Powell struggled from the field. 19 points, but he shot 7 of 20 from the field, 4 of 11. From behind the arc. And no other Pirates scored in double figures. Quincy McKnight, Miles Kale each had nine. Romaro Gill had eight off the bench. Tyree Samuel had a three. Shavar Reynolds had a decent game of seven points. And then Jared Roden and Anthony Nelson, the sophomores on this team, with four points each. But they combined for just three of 13 from the field. And obviously with Mamou getting hurt five minutes into the game, he... Did not record a point, and the only shot he took a step back three was an air ball. So where do, where does the Seton Hall team go from here? Honestly, I don't know. Losing Sandro Mamukelashvili is a huge loss because his presence in the post against Iowa State in the Bahamas was the reason why Seton Hall was able to win that game. Because he had 18 points and 7 rebounds on the game. And he shot 7 of 10 from the field. So if you're Seton Hall, you know, you got to obviously, you got to learn to cope with this loss. And let me just say this. Kevin Willard, a couple things on him. Number one, his teams have this reputation of losing these kind of games. And it's not a good look. I mean, realistically, based on how these other games have gone, this team should be 8 and 1, not 6 and 3 because they blew games against Michigan State and Oregon. And now you're 6 and 3 losing a tough game at Iowa State. I mean, it was just not a good performance. I mean, after a long period of rest, Seton Hall just didn't come ready to play. It's that simple. And another thing, I will say this, the refereeing crew didn't show up either. James Breeding, being the crew chief on that game, and then the other two referees, Michael Stevens, I'm pretty sure, was one of them, as well as, uh, no, not, not Stevens, Jeffrey Anderson and Brett Hampton were the other refs. And... 
if you if you Biggie's fans remember James Breeding, he was also the crew chief on the Seton Hall Marquette disaster in Madison Square Garden in the Big East semifinals a year ago. And we all know how that went. With so many fouls called. And late in the game, Seton Hall is down by six with about a minute and a half to go. The press is working. They force a tough three-pointer by Prentice Nixon. He misses the shot. And all of a sudden, you hear a whistle from James Breeding, a foul while he's shooting a three on Miles Powell. And I quoted this on Twitter. If you watch the replay, there's no foul. Nothing even resembling a foul. Like, I got to get in my soapbox and just say James Breeding is the worst Big East official out there. It's not even close. He just reeks of mediocrity as an official. Like, obviously, you don't complain about the... I don't complain about the officiating during a game because, you know, you got to find a way to win despite all that. And in the grand scheme of things, if they had not called a foul, it probably doesn't lead to Seton Hall rallying all the way back to win that game. Probably not. But that three-point foul... And Nixon made all three shots, got the lead back up to nine, and basically buried any hopes of Seton Hall making a comeback. And that was the fourth foul on Miles Powell. He would later foul out not too long after that when he got called for a charge. But James Breeding, you got to be better than that. Period. That entire crew had to be better than that. And they weren't. And I'm going to touch on officiating and whatnot in my icebreaker, so don't go anywhere for that. And Seton Hall, got to find a way to cope with the loss of Sandro Mamu Kalashvili because they're going to have to deal with it for quite a while now. And now the question becomes, who's going to replace him at power forward? Kevin Willard said that he's probably going to rely on Jared Roden and Tyree Samuel to platoon at power forward. But you know what irritates me? He's got another power forward on that bench that he doesn't even acknowledge. And his name is Torian Thompson. Now, I know Torian was at the center of the whole tampering scandal when he left Syracuse to come to Seton Hall in 2017. And he's barely seen the court. I think he's only played in one game all season. And people forget that a year ago, yesterday... Torian Thompson was a huge reason why Seton Hall was able to go into Madison Square Garden and upset Kentucky. As big a reason as anybody on that team that day. I know Miles Powell had a monster game. But if it wasn't for Torian Thompson, maybe they wouldn't have been able to hang around for as long as they did. This is a guy who knows how to score the rock. And you got to have faith in him to adapt defensively. And that was the reason why he was benched towards the end of last season. Because you want to have your best defensive players out there more in high leverage games that could determine whether you're in and out of the NCAA tournament. I know it's a risk if you're Kevin Willard. But you know what? That's got to be a risk you're willing to take. Don't be afraid to give him some minutes at Rutgers. On Saturday. Don't be afraid. Like what do you got to lose if you do? I know Rutgers is going to be a bad loss. If you lose. But what do you got to lose. If you play him. Because. You never know what he can do. I mean he's had. He had some games where he was absolutely brilliant. And he still has that brilliance in him. He just needs to be given a chance to prove that. So that is going to wrap it up for the week in review and somewhat of a brief preview about just a couple games that are going to be going on during the middle of the week. Tomorrow night with Brown against St. John's and then Butler at Baylor. Don't go anywhere because I got a special interview with DePaul alum and current member of the Oklahoma City Blue in the G League, Mike Henry. 
Got a lot to talk about, mainly with his professional career, but also talk about some of his memories from DePaul. So don't go anywhere. That interview is coming up next right here on the Igloo. Welcome back inside the Igloo. DePaul basketball has been surging lately. They've had a tremendous non-conference slate so far. They've beaten some really good teams. They're proven to be not to be so much of a seller dweller now. And joining me now is a DePaul alum now playing for the Oklahoma City Blue in the G League. Class of 2016, Mike Henry. Mike, thanks for joining the show, my man. Hey, what's going on, Tim? I, I mean, I can't complain. College basketball, full swing. Big East is only a few weeks away. I can, I mean, I, I, it's a good time to be a basketball fan, no matter where you are. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. So, um, you start, you were born and raised in Chicago. <clears throat> the Chicago basketball scene in high school is so competitive. And you came out in the class of 2011. And at the biggest star, even back then, even before he got to his senior year and moved on, to college and then the NBA was Jabari Parker. Just kind of take me through, you know, what the basketball scene is like, you know, in the city of Chicago and what it was like, you know, playing against, uh, if you did, playing against Jabari Parker back in the day. Uh, well, I never officially played against Jabari, so I can, that was an easy one. But playing basketball in Chicago, uh, I mean, you got to be tough, you know, nitty gritty because every night you're playing against, you know, top talent and, you know, you kind of, you would get exposed if you didn't come to play every night. So it's competitive and you got to like have this little toughness about you. And that toughness was something that you carried over and that made you really appealing to a lot of coaches. And the one coach that you really were appealing to was Bruce Weber at Illinois, you know, staying at home, essentially at home, but staying in state, uh, going to Champaign. And after your first year, Bruce Weber, uh, was canned by the university and they bring in a new coach and you didn't get as much playing time as you had as a freshman. So after your sophomore year, um, you make the decision to transfer uh, mm-hmm. to DePaul and you come home to Chicago. Was What was the decision process into, you know, leaving a big 10 school in Illinois to, you know, coming back home to playing at DePaul? Uh, well, I mean, Illinois was kind of my dream school, you know, coming out of high school, because uh, that's where I like that's where all the top players went to, you know, like the Jeremy Richmonds, uh, the Crandall Heads, DJ Richardson, Brandon Paul, and you know, I kind of looked up to some of those guys, you know, coming out of high school, and so that's why I initially went there, and then I saw opportunity at DePaul, so that kind of made my decision like fairly easy, and DePaul, you know, they had a good program back when uh, uh, Bobby Simmons and, and, and all those guys were there. And, you know, I kind of wanted to go and make a name for myself there and help the program. And, you know, your first year there, I mean, DePaul in the Big East, you know, preceding that, they had really struggled. But your first year there, they won six conference games and shockingly coming out of the gate, you know, you got some big wins, you know, you beat Xavier at home, you beat St. John's at home, you swept <coughs> Seton Hall. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what was the overall v- vibe that you guys had um, just that season where you kind of, you know, changed the narrative in a way about DePaul uh, for that one specific season? Well, I mean, we had a talented group, you know, at that point of my career being there. And we kind of, who was my first, my first coach was, uh, was that Oliver Parnell? Mm -hmm. It (laughs) was. Yeah. uh, OP. You know, we had a a tough group and going into the Big East, you know, you got to be ready to play every night because you're going against, you know, the Villanovas, the St. John's, the Marquettes, you know, and. And you gotta kind of be focused, have like a certain focus to you, Mm -hmm. to even be competitive in those games. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. I mean, there is never such thing as an easy night in the Big East. Not, not at all. Even, (laughs) even in blowouts, you're, even in blowouts, you're probably gonna get into some sort of dogfight. Mm-hmm. Sure. (laughs) So. Just take me th- your first 
um, experience at the Big East tournament, Madison Square Garden. Take me through what was going through your head, you know, the first time, you know, walking foot in the middle. <laughs> oh, yeah, man. That's an, uh, a, a historic place. And, you know, a lot of players played in there and, and done great things. And, you know, you, so you kind of go in with jitters a little bit, you know, just because it's like a little bit overwhelming just to be in a place where, you know, so many greats have played. And I don't even know who we played. I think we played uh, Creighton. Uh-huh. Creighton that first game. I think we lost, but still, <laughs> it was just an amazing – it was amazing, like, just being able to play there, you know. Um, You know, speaking of, you know, traveling around, you know, the country in the Big East, you know, you got five schools on the East Coast. You got five schools like DePaul out in the Midwest. Um, any favorite places to play on the road during your Big East tenure? Favorite place? Oh, man, got to be Creighton. I think that place was packed out when we played there. Over and Om- over. Yeah, no, it was away. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Omaha's always, Omaha's always been, you know, referred to as a really full environment. I mean, I've never seen an underwhelming crowd, yeah. at least at Creighton. Um, but, uh, to you know, to ref- go back to – uh, DePaul and, you know, your playing time there, you know, you got your senior year, though, you do did get a couple huge wins that year, one of which and they were both at home. So huge, a huge win in non-conference against the eventual NIT champions from George W. when they were at the time ranked in the top 25. And then I think your signature win was where you beat Chris Dunn in Providence at Allstate Arena. Um, mm-hmm. What were your what were your memories from that night and just how that game went? From the uh, the Providence game, yep. Oh man, that was one of the the best games. I know I had at DePaul, and you know I just came in with, with uh, a level of focus. And I, I think somebody got hurt. Uh, what is it, Ben Bentel? I think it was. I think it was Ben Bentel. Yeah, he kind of got hurt, and so you know they weren't really as strong as they normally are. But uh, you know we took advantage of it. I took advantage of it, and you know uh, I had a great game. <laughs> I yeah, I mean, they were still a top, they were still a top fifteen team when you took them yeah. down. So, mm-hmm. I mean, in a way, you know, with some of the wins, you know, dating back, you know, your last two years, Paul, you guys were really giant killers. You know, <laughs> did you guys kind of have that mentality of trying to do that every single night? Yeah, we did. You know, that's always the focus going into any game. You know, trying to win. You know, you don't just lose on purpose. And <laughs> <laughs> you know, like if like if if you like, I mean, if if. You know, as Herm Edwards say, hello, you play to win the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So, I mean, when you see the big teams, you know, everybody comes to play that night. You know, just because, you know, it's a national televised game and, you know, you're going against the top players, you know, and at the college level. Any favorite battles, like, individually, like guys that you like to match up against in the Big East? Uh, guys I like to match up, man. I kind of take the challenge on anybody. You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't really have a favorite matchup. You know, I just take the challenge every night to try to be the best that I can be and, and to to see if the my opponent has the same energy or outlook that I have, you know. Yeah, no, I've, I, I, I totally get that. And, you know, internally with your team, um, you had a lot of – there was there was talent there. I, there was absolutely yeah, we were stacked. no <laughs> – I mean, the, I mean, there, the talent was undeniable. Yeah. It, it, the, the What I've seen is, you know, you guys had good teams, just that everyone else in the Big East was just that good or that much better, too. Uh, so, you know, just to go back to your team, mm-hmm. um, any any specific guys that, you know, you love competing against in practice and that you feed it off playing with? I mean, I love that whole team, so I don't want to just say names, but I can say the whole team, you know. The Billy Garrett, uh, uh-huh. the Tommy Hamilton, the Rashawn Stimmich, uh, Derek Wood, you know. Aaron Simpson, too. Aaron Simpson, yeah, for sure. I can keep on going, you know. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, we don't got all day, all day yeah, for I know, it. Yeah. But, uh, so moving on to your professional career, um, you played a year with the Oklahoma City Blue, and then after that, you wound up in Mexico in – I believe it was. Oh my! I I know the state was Sonora. I think it was Her- Hermosillo. Yeah, Hermosillo. Yep. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so I got a. Um, what was it like? A playing there and B, you know, living 
uh, in Mexico? Well, playing there, you know, I, I really got a chance to develop, you know, my game being out there because I was on the floor so much, you know, and I get, I got, I was able to, you know, get the experience to, you know, know how to react in certain situations, and uh, you know, they kind of helped me, you know, get better as a player. And living there, man, it's, it was the most fun I've had in my life. You know, it was a nice place. You know, I think I'm right. You know, by the beach. Oh man, got, you, you got you got a lot. I mean, anytime you could be in tropical or just somewhat warm weather, you, I mean, you, you you can't complain. You gotta love it. And let me let me ask you this though: Is the Mexican food there? Obviously, it's or they probably just call it food there. But is the food in Mexico better than the Mexican food here in the states? <laughs> I mean, you get the authentic food out there, so uh, oh, yeah. it's hands down better, you know. All right, any favorite foods that you, you know, made meals out of? Uh, no, just the tacos. Just the, ta- just the tacos. All right, all right. Respected. Um, <laughs> and then another place you ended up was Israel, where you were an all-star. Uh, was that kind of – I know you developed – a lot in during 2017, you know, in Mexico, and you took that as more of a developmental year, but 2019, would you say that was sort of like your coming out party as a professional? Um, I see it as a small stepping stone for sure. I mean, at this point in my career, man, um, it's probably the biggest stage that I've, you know, kind of had a chance to actually like show my, showcase my talent, you know, yeah, and it was good enough to get you back to the place where you started in the G League in Oklahoma City. So uh, how's your second stint going there so far? And, uh, I mean, going from, you know, country to country, now coming back home, uh, how are you liking the adjustment so far? Uh, I mean, you know, the, the, the FIBA ball is different. You know, it's, it's more physical over there, and they kind of let you go a little bit. So coming back here, you know, I kind of took that physicality and incorporated it into my game here and you know it's so much space here to play and 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 just do whatever you want to it's, it's kind of made the game simple for me you know and um, so um in a, um so I know you've been removed from DePaul for a few years now but um have you been able to like keep up with the program you know over the last few years now I know that your senior year was the year Dave Lado took over, and slowly but surely, DePaul is you know drastically improved. So, have you been keeping up with all of that? Oh yeah, I'm there working out during the summertime. <laughs> awesome. Uh, yeah. what, what, what were your th- what were your thoughts about Winchester Arena opening up too? No, in there. So, really? Even gotten a chance to. I mean, you know, um, I'm, I don't know if you guys – I know there's a G League team not too far from Chicago. So, if timing's right, I mean, from what I've seen, Wintrust Re- Arena looks absolutely gorgeous. And I'll tell you what, it is, you know, compared to Allstate Arena, this place looks like – how would I phrase this? It's like going from – it's like going from uh, – it, from an upstate New Yorker sense, it's like going from the city of Buffalo, if you will, going to, and you're going to Niagara Falls. Like it's scenic, it's beautiful. You can tell there's a difference. Yeah, I mean, I see the videos that they post on you know social media in the white room. The white room looks ridiculous. You know, the court looks amazing. You know. Oh yeah, a- absolutely. The, the videos that I've seen. Absolutely, and. Just to see, I mean, this year in particular, they've been able to rack up big win after big win after big win. Uh, so as an, alum, <laughs> as, as an alum, I mean, how much pride do you take in that? Uh, I support all the guys because I, I kind of know them. So, you know, I'm like, I want them to do well and to win and to be, you know, because it makes yeah. the universe better. And then it helps them, you know, become professionals. I, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Now, now the question is: I know you got an, another former Big East guy, Justin Patton, in your in your locker room. You, 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 you brag, you brag a little bit to him. Don't lie to me. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I tell him that we already know right now. 
But, but Justin's a good dude, so he doesn't even give me like any pushback. <laughs> <laughs> but um, speaking of you know other Biggie's adversaries, um, have you been able to you know not only um, yeah obviously you played with one with Justin Patton, but have you faced anyone that you played against you know back in the Biggie's days in the professional ranks yet? Let me see. Let me see. Like, I don't know if you guys run into the Kent charge at all, but I just talked with Sir Dominic Pointer not too long ago, so you might see him down the road. Yeah, down the road, we should see him. Uh, we just saw uh, Kellen Martin from Butler. Oh, Keelan, man. Yeah, Keelan. Yeah, Keelan. Yeah, he was just – he was a young buck when you were playing. Yeah, he was young. Yeah, yeah, but the, the guy can play. But We just saw him yesterday, but I didn't play. Ah, uh, okay. All right. But – uh, you know, just kind of to wrap things up, I I, I asked Sir Dominic about this because uh, he was the first uh, G League guy that I was able to talk to. So now I'm going to pose the question to you. Uh, during your professional career, what's the biggest thing that you've learned about, you know, going from being a student athlete to just playing basketball for a living? Uh, let me see. Uh... I mean, number one, you know, professionalism. You know, you, you got to be professional at all times. And if you want to see results up here, you know, you got to put the work in, but you also have to, you know, follow, you know, the path that's laid out for you with the, you know, dealing with coaches and the organization. You know, there's a lot that goes into that. And you got to kind of be, like, you got to kind of, like, adapt to it. You know, you got to be adaptable. You know, that's, like, a, a big thing. Yeah, I mean – like you I mean, you said it well. You got to adapt. You know, survival of the fittest. If you don't adapt, you're gonna die out. Mm-hmm. All right, Mike. Really appreciate your time uh, coming on the show, and best of luck with the rest of your season um, in Oklahoma City. Enjoy it there, and uh, definitely look forward. Hopefully, I'll see you somewhere down the road. And um, I, I really couldn't, you know, thank you enough. <laughs> yeah, it's no it's problem. it's always great. It's always great connecting with Big East alum, with Big East alumni. It's, it, it really is a, a family atmosphere, even with, with no matter what school you're affiliated with, where you went, where you went, uh, where you're going after that. It, the Big East is all one group. I, I, so I guess the final question I got to pose, um, I know you were only in the Big East for a couple of years, but what makes the Big East so special in your eyes? What makes it so special? I mean, no, I just like the competition, the competition level. You know, the fast-paced, that's like my style of play, and it's like, I love it. Well, uh, um, so, Mike, again, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for joining me inside the Igloo. Thank you. Again, yep, no problem, Mike. Again, best of luck moving forward. Oh, yeah, thank you, thank you. Icebreaker's coming up right after this. Welcome back inside the Igloo. A big thank you to Mike Henry of the Oklahoma City Blue and a proud DePaul alum for joining me inside the Igloo. It was a great interview talking about some of his memories from being a Blue Demon at the end of his college career after coming from Illinois, a little bit about his professional career, and a little everything in between that. So without further ado, it's time to get to this episode's icebreaker. Now, I kind of alluded to it during the first segment where I talked about the officiating in Seton Hall's loss to Iowa State on Sunday. And over the weekend, I had the opportunity, I think for the first time since I was in high school, I think, to see my father, who has worked his way up over the years, got to see him ref a Division Three women's basketball game at... Uh, SUNY Poly, and SUNY Poly has got a special place in my heart because for well over 20 years, maybe even closer to 30, my dad worked the scoreboard there for basketball games, and when I was a kid, I would always want to come to games, especially on the weekends when they would face like SUNYAC teams back when they were in that conference, and now in the Northeast Athletic Conference. So I would always come to those games when I was a kid. And now as, you know, 
a 23-year-old getting to see your dad ref there in a women's basketball game, it's pretty damn cool. And I was really, you know, trying to watch, learn, and observe him as he's officiating this game. And and I know my dad's watched me before, so, you know, the least bit, bit I could do is, you know, go to watch him Maybe pick up a thing or two from his officiating techniques and whatnot. And for the most part, it was going pretty good. First half went by pretty smoothly for him and the rest of his three-man crew. However, things got a little chippy in the second half. And this one guy, I want to say he was right around my age. Little less, little more, I'm not really sure. During the second half, he was just going off and just criticizing and yelling at my dad and the and the other two officials. And he was he just wouldn't shut up. And he was just complaining and complaining. And props to the other two refs for ignoring it. But listen, if you know me, I can be pretty irritable. Let's put it that way. And the apple doesn't fall fall too far from the tree. I'll be honest with you. And my dad, while he is doing his count for a free throw to make sure that it doesn't go over 10 seconds, he's getting an earful from this guy. And keep in mind, Again, this is a guy, I'm guessing he's supporting someone from SUNY Poly. And I know after we discussed, um, when we discussed this after the game, when he came home, uh, there was an incident where after a foul, there was some mutual shoving between a SUNY Poly player and a player from the other team from Penn State Burks. And the referee who had called the foul was too worried about reporting it to the table that he wasn't able to turn around and see that happen, and they missed it. And when we watched the tape back after the game, there should have been two technicals administered to the SUNY Poly player and the Penn State Burks player. However, they got it wrong, and only the SUNY Poly player got the technical foul. So, I know referees aren't perfect. Like, like, just like, just like you, they are human. Humans make mistakes. But for this guy to run his mouth all game long, and keep in mind, he is definitely not a certified official. And the funny thing is, I didn't learn until I finally, you know, passed the test and became a certified official that it's really damn hard to get well I I try to get I try to get everything right but I know I can't but even some of the easier stuff it's it's difficult because you know you got to be in position you got to know where you got to be on the court and this guy just didn't understand any of it and one of the things my dad said to him was you know, you could take the test and maybe you could do this yourself. And then he just continued to be a smart ass and just barking at him and barking at him. And my dad got so infuriated. And I was infuriated too from the stance just listening to this asshole, part of my French, that he nearly threw him out. And he even told him, hey, you know, you can just get up and leave if you don't like this. Which is the, it's the appropriate response. I credit him for doing that. If that were me, I would have said a lot worse. I mean, my dad can get pretty angry. I know I can get pretty angry. So the fact that my dad kept himself in check and didn't go any farther, I mean, I give all the credit to the world to him. And I learned a lot that day from him particularly. And then while this guy's running his mouth, he's like, you guys are calling everything against SUNY Polly. I'm like, I looked up at the scoreboard. And the foul margin was 5-2 to two in favor of SUNY Poly. So I just merely stated, I'm like, the foul counts 5-2 to two in favor of you guys. Just thought you know. 
And he's just like, who the hell do you think? Like, he's got this look at him. He's like, who the hell do you think you are? And he just, I think the parents that he was with, it might have been his parents. I don't know. But apparently they were just giving me dirty looks the rest of the game, which was for the last seven minutes or so. Either way, honestly, I did not care. And the reason why I didn't care is because I know I'm right. And until that guy actually learns what it's like to be an official, he won't understand. Now, I know that me criticizing the officials from Seton Hall Iowa State was a little contradictory. I get that. But as an official, I got to look at these things sometimes. And it was just not good watching some of the things that they were calling. It just looked forced, if you will. Like, you know how teams can play hero ball where they're just chucking up these crazy shots in order to, you know... In order to save face, really, and get themselves back in the game, I think these referees in particular were trying to save face by making these calls when they those calls weren't really there. And I know Big East officials have gotten a lot of crap over the last year or so, and there have been several controversies, both dealing with Seton Hall majorly, with the game against St. John's at the Prudential Center, and then the Big East semifinal game against Marquette, where the officials came under fire for the way they handled the game. These referees aren't perfect, but you know, if you're at a game, you know, you can say this this call sucked or that call sucked or whatever, but you just don't continue to chirp them all game long because I promise you, it won't get anything done. Or it's not going to change how they're officiating the game. Because to them, you're just white noise and you don't matter. And I know it sounds so cliche. You know, let the players play. Let the officials officiate. Just sit back. Enjoy the game. Because after all, it is just a game. So that wraps it up for this episode of the Igloo. A big thank you again to Mike Henry for being my special guest for this episode. And I got a big weekend episode coming up with a huge slate of games coming up on Saturday. So be on the lookout for that. Until then, this is Timmy I signing off from the Igloo. Thanks, and make sure to tune in on Friday.